Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, what's going on? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening, wherever you are. Today on the program, my guest is Kate Folk, author of the debut story collection entitled Out There. There definitely is like a moment for like that kind of crossover literary speculative fiction. There's like a theory that stories go more into this weird terrain when the times are like uncertain politically and culturally and there's a lot of chaos and confusion and so the stories end up getting weirder kind of in response to that. That right there was Kate Folk and her debut story collection again is called Out There available now from Random House. It was published just yesterday, as a matter of fact. You may also recall the title story from the collection in The New Yorker magazine. It was published there a couple of years ago to great fanfare. Very nice to meet Kate Folk and to catch her as she makes this great debut. So stay tuned. That is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Echo Books, publisher of the novel Drowning Practice by Mike McGinnis, who incidentally was my guest on this program just last week. Drowning Practice is some really good literary speculative fiction. It's an apocalypse novel. It's a mother-daughter story. It takes place at what could be the end of the world. Is it the end of the world? I don't know. You got to read it to find out. Kirkus calls Drowning Practice, quote, twisty and moving, and Matt Bell, a past guest on this program, calls it, quote, the best new novel I've read in ages. That's Drowning Practice, the new novel by Mike McGinnis, available from Echo. Go get yourself a copy. Okay, so I do need to say some quick thank yous to people who have pre-ordered my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, which is due out on May 10th. 
Big thanks to Tim States, Andrew Catone, Melena Patel, and Parissa Flores. I really appreciate it, you guys. Thank you very much. If you are listening right now and thinking to yourself, wow, I really would love to pre-order Brad Listy's new novel, you can do that right now at bradlisty.com. It's all right there. I've tried to make it user-friendly. You can buy the book or pre-order the book from whichever bookseller you prefer. And if you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will send you a note and an other people sticker in the mail, and I will give you a shout-out right here in the monologue. You can email your proof of purchase to the show's email address, letters at otherppl.com, or you can DM the show on Twitter or on Instagram. Also, a quick administrative matter. I now have an events page on my website, bradlisty.com. I'm in the process of scheduling some events around the book's launch in May and beyond. So if you want to check out my events, some of them are going to be in person, some are going to be virtual. Just go to bradlisty.com and click on events in the sidebar. You'll see it. Aside from that, I did recently record the audiobook edition of my novel. I went into the studio out in Burbank, as one does, <laughs> in a Paul Thomas Anderson country. It was very Paul Thomas Anderson, too. It was like a recording studio in a strip mall in Burbank. And I got to be honest, it was somewhat strange and a little bit hard to shake. And the reason is that it was a one-on-one experience. I showed up at this recording studio. I was greeted by a very nice uh, director slash sound sound engineer who, you know, took care of the session and made sure that I stayed on track and helped me with word pronunciations when I needed it or all that kind of stuff. But what was fundamentally odd about it was the fact that it was just the two of us in a relatively small space. And I read my book aloud to this guy, a complete stranger at close range from start to finish. And that's not something that normally happens among two adults. I mean, unless I'm missing something, I have never read a novel to another adult from start to finish (laughs) while seated just the two of us in a small room. But this was what happened. And what made it a little bit unnerving is the fact that I was getting feedback in real time. I would hear his responses to certain passages or sections in my headphones. And then I would think, oh, that's good. He likes it. Or I would hear something he would say and I would read into it and be like, oh, I guess that didn't work for him. Or that was too precious. Or I got too maudlin in this section. And you know, for a book like mine, which is autofiction-y and trauma-related and basically details the trials of my adult life, that's a strange book to read to a complete stranger that you've just met when you're sitting in a room. <laughs> so he was very nice, but I continue to think about it and worry about it a little bit and wonder what his responses might mean for other people's responses. And you know what I mean. You can extrapolate It can be easy to get at this stage in the process, a little bit obsessive and neurotic. And I've been pretty good about turning that off and just ignoring it and keeping myself busy. But every once in a while, you know, 
you get wobbly. So that's that. The audiobook edition will be coming out from Tantor Media, a division of recorded books in May. So if you're an audiobook person, you can get the audiobook. I will read you my book. So my guest, again, is Kate Folk, author of the debut story collection entitled Out There, available now from Random House. Kate Folk has written for a variety of publications. I mentioned The New Yorker magazine earlier. She has also written for The New York Times Magazine, Granta, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, and Ziziva. She was recently a Stegner Fellow in fiction at Stanford University, and she lives in the Bay Area in San Francisco where the bulk of this collection, if not the entire thing, is set. I'm trying to remember. It's definitely a very San Francisco slash Silicon Valley collection with all that that entails. And it's just wonderful to catch Kate as she makes this fine debut and sends this book out into the world. So here we go. This is my conversation with Kate Folk and her new story collection, One More Time, is called Out There. You know, it's like something that's happening everywhere and the Bay Area is just like the the first place that it's being developed and accelerated and so it's kind of like the most obvious here but I feel like everywhere you know we're so our lives are so mitigated by technology now but it seems like here trends are just heightened even beyond the rest of the country like and beyond technology too like although related to the tech industry like with the rent prices and just how everything's so expensive here and there's such a like extreme inequality, like the richest people and then lots of poverty and unhoused people on the streets. And so there's there are these kind of like dystopian elements just to the city and also like the physical landscape, I think, is so beautiful. And with the fog and the cold, it's it feels like an otherworldly place. It's like the rest of the country will be you know, hot during the summer and then it's cold in San Francisco and I'm wearing like a down jacket. So I think that that lends itself to this kind of strange, eerie atmosphere as well, which suits with like a kind of sci-fi or speculative bent. Which like all these stories, like that's the mode they're operating in. And I think too of San Francisco and the Bay Area as a place for true believers. I think all of us are influenced and affected and engage with technology to one degree or another. And my experiences of being in San Francisco, especially in the modern era, is that there's so much money there. Uh, Obviously, it's pooled at the top. And I feel like because there's so much money flowing in like technology startups and in the business community, there's the kind of gold rush mentality. And it foments a kind of like often like an evangelical kind of fervor among the business people who are there trying to sort of mine their riches. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they really believe in it to a degree that I think exceeds maybe other places. Yeah. And I always, that kind of ethos of like changing the world for the better always bothered me because it seems kind of disingenuous compared to like the stereotype of like a New York stockbroker or something where there's, there's no myth of like improving the world. It's, it's just about making money. But I think, at the end of the day, that's pretty much 
the the ambition underlying everything in the tech world too. I mean, there is like a ambitious kind of utopianism or wanting to to create these new technologies. But yeah, at the end of the day, it is just like rich people looking for things to throw their money at basically, which is, it seems to be why so many of these startups end up being kind of hollow and uh, based on nothing, like not based on real science like with the Theranos thing and and so many of these other ventures that have kind of collapsed recently. So yeah, um, yeah, like the Theranos thing is a perfect example of the kind of like creepy dystopian vibe that you're getting at in these stories. Uh, that kind of embodies it. And you just made me, I think, for the first time ever, feel like a like a twinge of like empathy and affection for stockbrokers because i was like yeah at least they're honest <laughs> you know like the wall street guys i'm like they have they don't even make any uh you know there's no illusion to it they're not trying to convince you that they're going to save the world they're purely out just to enrich themselves and that's it and i think that sometimes like in my work experiences i've worked for some startups there's always that kind of veneer of like positive change and a sense of mission and everybody's got the t-shirt and you know what I'm saying? Like those weird, like creepy company photos <laughs> Like underneath it all though, at the founder level, it's purely about just getting super rich. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of creepy too, how it's everything's so flattened in San Francisco, like aesthetically. I mean, like nobody wants to look rich, it seems like, or there's much less of that as on the East coast. So it'll just be like the tech founders will be wearing, like a fleece shirt or whatever and khakis and or not even khakis like jeans and a hoodie or whatever that classic thing so yeah there's something that feels a little dishonest about it because it is like everyone's pretending to be kind of just you know a programmer in a garage or whatever but actually it's become this huge industry that has just scarily powerful and and wealthy. So, and it's interesting too because I've never I mean I've never worked in the tech industry, so I feel I feel like it's funny that I'm being kind of turned to as an authority in a way on this kind of thing just because of like the blot stories and because of the San Francisco setting, but I think it is kind of an interesting perspective to write about it from as someone who like I've lived here since 2008 and so I've seen the city change even over the years I've been here and be kind of increasingly shaped by the tech industry, although it had been for, for years before that too. And so I think kind of being an outsider, but just experiencing tech like secondhand and seeing seeing like the new innovations in their like beta testing mode, like with, with Lyft, I remember just seeing like the cars with pink mustaches on them when they first came out and just being like, what is that? And so kind of just the sense that anything is possible and any day there might just be some really weird new thing that I just have to contend with now in my daily life in the city. Like a blot. Um, and, and you know, yeah, like a blot. Yeah. We're going to get to defining blots for listeners, but you talked a, <laughs> a minute ago about, you know, how the really rich tech bros or tech people often like dress down. And I think, you know, and, and it's like the flip flops in the hoodie, right? That's the Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. costume. And I don't know, maybe I feel like I talked about it on this show with somebody, but it could have also been something I read and I read uh, somewhere online in some article about how people are like post money, which is, 
Mm. a really infuriating kind of, <laughs> you know, phrase. But there's these guys who have made so much money in tech who are like, yeah, I'm post money. So now like my mind, I'm just thinking about other things about like my mission and my spiritual or whatever it is, you know, but I don't need to think about money anymore. And it's like, well, that sounds great. Right. And it's so that's so funny because it's like that's the ultimate privilege, right, is to not have to think about money. Yeah. It doesn't even like occur like, to you. You just get yeah. so much of it. And then the other like more menacing thing that like has always stayed with me since I read it was that, you know, this tech costume that Mark Zuckerberg sort of embodies of like the super dressed down founder CEO who's just like a regular guy who plays ping pong in the break area and the, you know, whatever that's like a way of like taking some of the attention off of what he's actually doing. Do you know what I'm right. saying? He just becomes like yeah. a normal guy and he could be anyone and you don't really know who he is or have a sense of his personality he kind of blends, you know, and mm -hmm. it's a way of like diminishing the threat at a, like a, you know, visual slash symbolic level. So I was like, oh, maybe that's like part of the strategy. It's not just like he's a guy who doesn't know how to dress and just likes to be comfortable. It's a guy who's like calculated that this is the way that he can do what he wants to do with minimal scrutiny and he can make himself seem more benign. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it is very disarming because it's just like he seems so unthreatening when you see see him in his outfits and his haircut. But <laughs> <laughs> What do you think about that haircut? <laughs> um. I don't know. I mean, I think maybe he just like has a strange hairline to begin with or something. So maybe it's like not his fault, but it seems like it's just the same as with the outfit, right? Like it doesn't seem like he's put any effort into working with what he's got or whatever in terms of the hair. Cause it seems like a, a good hairstylist could probably do yeah. more with it. You've I got a hundred, you've got a hundred billion dollars. Like bring yeah. some, bring somebody over, like get a stylist or something. <laughs> Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, let's talk about blots because that seems like a nice moment to segue. I, I love these stories, by the way. It's like such a brilliant idea and something that characterizes these kinds of brilliant ideas, like creative ideas for me is that I can't believe I didn't think of it. You know, it's one of those things. It's like, oh, of course. Mm -hmm. Like, this is exactly the, like, the natural progression. You know, this this story had to be written. But just explain to listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read what a blot is. And if you could talk a little bit, too, about how the idea for the blots originated. 
Yeah, so a blot is basically um, like a spam bot come to life, like on dating apps and especially for men dating women. I think on like Tinder, there's so many bots to contend with, I've heard, where it'll just be this incredibly beautiful woman who is like really enthusiastic about meeting up. And by that, you know that she is not a real person. And so um, (laughs) there's I think there's less of that for women dating men, which is my experience. But so basically the concept of the blot is that it's it's like a flesh version of of like a bot basically. So they target women on dating apps and then the woman like meets up with them and is this perfectly handsome kind of bland man who is like objectively the perfect guy, right? Like he's really attentive and kind and Um, will just do anything to charm a woman and give her a great time and all of that. But then his ultimate objective is to take the woman to Big Sur for a weekend trip where there's no cell phone service. And then in the middle of the night when she's asleep, steal all of her data and then uh, vaporize in a cloud of lavender scented mist. And so it's kind of this like phishing data mining operation and basically the blots leave the woman's life in ruins and kind of ruin her reputation online and, you know, steal her financial information and, and defraud her in all of these ways. And so they're being controlled by some entity that's left kind of mysterious in the stories. But yeah, it was it was basically uh, from my own experiences of online dating. I think I wrote the first version of the story in 2016. And and I had done online dating on and off for years, and it just started to feel like all of I was having all of these conversations with guys on the apps that felt really interchangeable, and even even like the guys' profiles started to seem like it was all basically the same person. It would be like founder of (laughs) such and such. It was like everyone's a founder, and Uh everyone's got kind of the same style. Like you know, there's like the nature shot, and then some kind of sporty shot, and travel, et cetera, everyone just seemed like so kind of generic that, and and all the conversations I was having too, you know, partly my own fault because I wasn't really invested in like the project of online dating, but it just felt like I was having these very superficial small talk conversations with like 10 different people at once. And I was like, you know, if if one or two of these guys is actually a bot, um, I would never know. And it actually wouldn't really matter because it was kind of fulfilling the same purpose for me and just giving me this like hit of of intimacy or like a sense of intimacy or some kind of romantic validation just to like tide me over for the night or whatever so that I wouldn't feel depressed. And I think that a lot of people, you know, use dating apps in that way. Like there's there's people who really want to want to meet or they want to hook up or they want to have a relationship or or any of those things. But there's also people who just want to kind of talk to someone in like a slightly romantic or sexual way. And, and that's kind of the extent of what they want from the app. So I found that interesting. And then just this idea, like the same as, as what you said, like it just seemed like if if the technology existed for a blot, then this would totally be a real thing. And I could see it being a real thing, you know, within the next few years or whatever, because I know that artificial intelligence and these technologies are advancing so fast. And also what we see now, like just as layman or whatever is just a fraction of of what's really being researched and developed you know so i almost wouldn't be surprised if bots were on the horizon that or is something a, like them yeah it's terrifyingly plausible and you, you describe them as like biomorphic humanoids this was something that like when i workshop the story people had a lot of questions 
about the exact nature of the blots, which I think has has changed a bit. But yeah, I'm imagining them not as not as robots, like not as having any, you know, metal exoskeleton or, or anything like that, but as being some technology maybe beyond what we have now, where they are like a biological human entity, but that also can kind of vaporize at a moment's notice leaving no trace it sort of reminds me of uh that alex garland movie ex machina you know there's like a hint of menace but they seem like they're like gorgeous and like hauntingly real and you know yet there's something machine-like about the way that they deliver especially you know the speech like the diction of the bot or the of the blot is uh sort of like beautifully rendered in your stories you can feel the machine in there you know and yet it's close enough that I think if you're a human, you could be fooled, especially if they're saying nice things, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I'm always really interested in the uncanny and for the blots, like the the idea of the uncanny valley and that it's almost there, but there's just something slightly off that makes them extremely off-putting and disturbing, even though, you know, it's this incredibly handsome man who's just nice and and all of these good things and yet there's just something that feels off about them but the idea being then that the blots continue to get more advanced and so then they're given more human qualities meaning more flaws and maybe you know they're not they're not a great listener they're not considerate they're not as handsome that kind of thing which is is what's happening in in out there the story so it, it becomes almost like a like something to brag about for for a woman if she's dating a guy who has all these flaws because it's like well he's a he's obviously a real guy he's not a blot because he sucks in all these ways so. <laughs> he's charmingly awful in a multitude yeah. of ways yeah i feel like it, this sort of thing is probably coming i think we have yeah. to be ready for it maybe not i don't know how soon but it's it seems like the natural progression of things and i'm also wondering if there are female blots like did I, am I misremembering or is it something that you didn't get to in the collection? They're all men. Yeah, they're all men. I think, you know, I could, I could imagine a different version of the story or maybe an expanded version where there, there are female blots, but I think I just, well, mostly I was focused on like my own experience as the foundation of, of dating men and thinking about the blots as men. But also I just feel like there's been a lot of movies and, and stories about, female AIs like Ex Machina, like you said. And so I kind of didn't want to, I don't know, I just wasn't as interested in depicting women blots because it felt it felt like that had been explored a lot already. And I feel like there's kind of a lot of tropes around that of, yeah, it's like the perfect woman, but then she's like a femme fatale waiting to ruin this guy's life. So I thought it would be more interesting for them to be men, especially because I think that women, like with online dating and just dating and life in general, are have to be more on guard and more more picky about who they become intimate with because of like real like physical danger with meeting strangers online. And so I thought that was interesting too because it's like a male blot would have to would have to be a lot uh, more canny in a way in in seducing them and in kind of proving that they're that they're a safe person to get close to. And so, yeah, I just thought it would be a different dynamic than, than with a woman blot who would, uh, you know, perhaps easily scam men, but it might not have all of those layers to it. No, that's a good point. I was, but I, you know, from a, a purely from a uh, business standpoint, 
I think your easiest marks would have to be the men. I mean, come on, like yeah. you, you want to steal some data, <laughs> just have some like <laughs> super hot blots, like, you know, saying nice things to uh, boys online. They would have their pick. Uh, yeah. So like, I missed online dating. Like I'm 46 and I met my wife, like just before all this stuff kind of went online and started happening. So I never did it. And I hear this over and over again from people who are dissatisfied with the experience or just find it gross. I also, you know, occasionally people will meet that way and get married. I have plenty of friends who've met their spouse on a dating app. So it's not that it can never work, but there's uh, something you said, I think, in an interview that you did with The New Yorker where you were talking about using dating apps and um, being told by friends or family or whatever that you sort of have to treat it like a job if you want it to work. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like this is the message that we get from so much of the technology that is integrated into our daily lives. The same thing's true of social media. Like, oh, you want to build a platform? You want to have like hundreds of thousands of followers and turn it in, you know, turn it into a money-making enterprise? Well, you better be a professional about it and treat it like a job and essentially work for us unpaid and create content for us, you know, that we can then monetize without sharing any of the spoils with you. And you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. You basically have to, you know, use these things constantly. And if it's not working for you, it then becomes some sort of like the implication is that it's a failure of yours, you know? Mm -hmm. I resent yeah. that. Yeah, I know. It's awful. I think it's just like whatever stage of capitalism we're in now where it's just like every, even these personal realms now have to be optimized and monetized in this way or, you know, you have to be as productive as possible in every single realm, including in like trying to find a partner and and yeah i mean i think there is like a kind of toxic quality to it of thinking like oh well you're just not trying hard enough if you're not you know finding the right person for you and if you just do x y and z and follow my like dating guide which you know there's plenty of people online who will tell you what you're doing wrong and and how you should go about it which is what like gurus yeah, I mean, just like advice people or, or people who have created like a brand for themselves as, you know, like dating coaches or and maybe some of it's helpful, but a lot of it is geared around online dating, too, which is kind of like the way that people date now. And if it's like if you don't want to do online dating, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess if, if you have like a robust social network, it's it's one thing and you could probably find a, a partner in real life, but there is like a whole system around it or people have, have these systems around strategy and it's like airline points or something like yeah. how to maximize your, you know, well, I feel like somebody like you, like you're super attractive, like young woman, you'd go on this, uh, dating app. I feel like you would be swarmed with like, like the problem would be that there would be all these guys messaging you and you're trying to like parse which ones are decent human beings or like actual human beings. And then like, I, you know, I mean, so is that the experience? I feel like with women on these dating apps in general, like you said, have to be more on guard. Yeah. There is also a mathematical part of the equation because I think there's tons, there's a lot more men on these things than women, right? Yeah. Like it's a lot of dudes like trying to get dates and then there's like really not as many women. So you have a lot of guys sort of vying for the hand of, or vying for the hands of a smaller subset of uh, users that are female. And does that become like, that's got to become onerous and overwhelming. Like how many coffee dates do you have to go on to try to like make sense of what's coming at you? Or I guess you're just doing text messages. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I never felt like there was just a wealth of options on online, although I guess there are, but it's it's like I was saying before, like everyone's kind of on the on these apps for different reasons. Like some people some people just like go through a breakup and then they just want, you know, a little affirmation, you know, through through the apps, but they don't actually even want to meet for coffee or even really talk. It's just kind of swiping. And and I've been in that position too of just like it almost becomes just a game or, or just another app to to kind of mindlessly swipe through people on Tinder or something. Right. Um, so I don't know. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not on the apps anymore. Like I'm in a relationship, so I'm glad to not be doing that anymore. But, but at the same time, it's not, yeah, it's not all bad. You know, I think it is, it can be fun. It's just about kind of the mindset you have going into it. I think, I think in the past when I did really want a relationship, it felt, it could feel really terrible because it's like, there's thousands of people on this app and if I can't find, you know, a relationship through, through this, then I'm just doomed and I'm just going to be alone. And then, (laughs) right. 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 Um, but I think for, for people who are just like going into it, like, Oh, I'm just going to meet people and have fun and get to know some people and, and kind of that attitude. I think it could be a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you have like a good attitude and yeah, I guess that's open. true for anything. But... I know, but I just I feel like <laughs> I feel like people should be able to go out in public and meet people. I mean, yeah. I say I say this as somebody who had a very difficult time doing that too. Why is it so hard for us as human beings to just go out and like meet strangers or just introduce ourselves to people that we find attractive? Or I guess it's like. Uh, people are busy and fearful of rejection or whatever it is. Somehow it's easier to do it on your phone where you have that like impersonal, you know, thing happening where you're at a distance. But I think it's also like, you never know if someone's receptive, going to be receptive to it. Like you don't want to intrude on someone, right? Like if, if it's just someone like reading a book at, at the bar or something, which I hear people do. Um, oh, right. you know, there was just a big, there was just a big yeah. uh, Twitter thing about this, right? Right. Yeah. So it's like, you don't want to like bother them or maybe they are in a relationship already or especially I think women can, can get really annoyed by having men make advances on them when they are just like going about their business. So I guess that's the good thing about the apps is that you're kind of opting in and you know that the other people there are open to being advanced upon uh, in theory, but probably not by everyone. Right. (laughs) Right. So I have to ask, I mean, I won't, we're obviously not going to delve into your personal relationships, but I'm curious to know, since your book is so much about this, if your current relationship, did you meet on a dating app? <laughs> no, no, actually, I I had known him for, for a long time, just through like mutual friends and San Francisco. And so, uh, yeah, it was actually during the pandemic, we started dating. I feel like my, my defenses were lowered, like in a good way. I don't want to, yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess that could sound weird, but I, I was just more open to, I guess, letting someone in because for the first couple months of, of the pandemic, I was basically just in my studio apartment alone, literally like not seeing anyone just like going for walks by myself. And so, yeah, I think it just kind of primed me to, to want that connection because I had been single for a while before that. Did you, did you write any of this book during the pandemic? Uh, 
mm, mostly not. I I wrote like a few of the stories. I think Moist House is is the most recent story, and I had written a draft of that just before the pandemic, and then and then edited it during the pandemic. So no, it was it's all material from before the pandemic. But I actually got the book deal like the same day San Francisco went into shelter in place. So interesting. How was that day? <laughs> it was. That was, yeah, that was a very strange day. It was just like, you know, felt like the world was falling apart and and all and people were suffering. And then, like, my dream was coming true with the book deal. So it was hard to know how to feel. I felt everything at once, I guess. I feel like the mood of this book and the world that it depicts are well matched for the times that we're living in. Like, I feel like sometimes books meet their moment with, like, uncanny timing or good luck timing, you know. But I feel like... It's not that everybody's going to have exact one-for-one correlative experiences, you know, but just that there's something in the mood of this that feels right for right now. I don't mean to say that all the terrible shit in the world that's going on are a boon to your literary career. (laughs) That would be (laughs) kind of a weird thing to say, but do you know what I'm getting at? I feel like there's something predictive. There's something predictive and unsettlingly recognizable in Mm -hmm. the sort of dreams that you're telling here. Mm-hmm. Do you, yeah. I, I guess like a question related to that would be, you know, for a writer who's writing speculative kind of sci-fi stuff, I'm wondering about like how you generate it and what kinds of things you're paying attention to that might give you this kind of material or lend your brain to creating this kind of material, you know, like consumptive patterns, like what are you reading how are you paying attention to things? Are you tuned into technology to a degree that maybe most literary writers are not? That's an interesting question because I don't think that any of it is really that deliberate. It's sort of just like I end up writing stories that feel interesting to me and I never know if they'll be interesting to anyone else. But I think that my life is enmeshed with technology probably the same way it is for most writers these days. Like I'm on Twitter, I'm kind of always just scrolling on Twitter and, you know, to the point where it does feel kind of sickening um, sometimes. And yet I haven't, I haven't found a good way to moderate that. And I've kind of just given up trying to moderate it. So yeah, I think it's just like being a part of the world we live in now. And especially with the pandemic, it's it's just accelerated the way we we live online even more, you know, especially for for people like like us or like media people who like work on Zoom and and from home a lot of the time. So yeah, I think I've always I've always been drawn though to to weird stories and I think the first big one was like the X Files when I was when I was a kid and a, te- a teenager, you know, and and kind of eerie stories and and in fiction i was really drawn to like amelia gray's work when i was when, after i graduated from the mfa and i've been kind of in this mode of thinking that i had to write realist fiction during the mfa i don't even think that was you know like imparted to me by my professors but what mfa may i ask i went to uh, the university of san francisco here in the city and and i graduated in 2011 and so 
Yeah, you know, I feel I feel like there is still this divide between kind of realist literary fiction and more speculative fiction. And and then there's the whole like genre fiction world, which I'm less familiar with. And and so I feel like a bit of a tourist, like writing sci-fi, uh, if you want to call some of the stories sci-fi. But there definitely is like a moment for for like that kind of crossover literary speculative fiction. And so there's like a theory that stories go more into this weird terrain when the times are like uncertain politically and culturally and there's a lot of chaos and confusion and so the stories end up getting weirder kind of in response to that well that's what i was saying about being perfectly matched for your time i mean this feels yeah feels like strangely of the moment it might be the only way that you can make sense of that much craziness you know when the volume is super high and there's just so much dark stuff happening you yeah. almost have to turn to an imaginative mode because to process in a realist mode is just too much. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like, it's kind of easier to me to think of things that feel somewhat like new or exciting ideas when when I'm open to, to this whole category of like speculative and weird stories. I mean, I, I definitely read realist fiction too and, and really love it. But I think the, the premises that really excite me are ones that that have some kind of non-realistic element to them where I can just read like a one-line synopsis and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm there. Sounds good. Okay. So I want to talk, I want to get like a dig in at like a craft level into how you make your stories. I don't know if, I guess each one's like a, a snowflake, right? They're all different <laughs> to some degree, but I think there's got to be common threads in terms of how you in particular craft these things. So I thought what might be uh, a useful exercise, if you're okay with it, is if we sort of unpack one, and this might be a little bit of a spoiler for, you know, for readers, but it's just one story. Sure. And I just want to, uh, I thought there was one called um, the Turkey Rumble. Is that what it's called? Yeah. The Turkey Rumble. Okay. So the <laughs> Turkey Rumble, uh, I will start by just having you just like encapsulate it for listeners so they know what the premise is. Like, can, can we do that? Sure. Uh, yeah. So the story is about a, a guy who's going home to his boyfriend's family's house for um, for Thanksgiving and kind of meeting the family for the first time. And his boyfriend, uh, Ruben, warns him that they have this tradition for Thanksgiving called the Turkey Rumble in which they have to, it's, it's kind of like Secret Santa, like they pull a name out of a hat of one of the other people there and then they have to at some point uh, over the course of the day inflict an injury on that person <laughs> so instead of a gift it's a it's an injury and it needs to be surprising and creative um like there's been times when like someone burns someone else with like a lighter like they light the lighter and then they they press the hot metal like against their skin or i think there's God, it's hard to even remember what the what the exact injuries are. There's something involving like a drill, um, there's something <laughs> just like stomping someone's foot under the table. You know, it could be minor, it could be kind of more intense, but everyone's really game for it. And the family is kind of like this family of adrenaline junkies and, you know, uh, the parents are formerly addicts. And so they, they kind of thrive on, on the highs and lows and extreme sports and also extreme consensual pain. violence, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, okay. You just, you summed it up perfectly. I think uh, a couple things. First of all, I think it's evident to people listening by now that there is something funny about a lot of your stories, which we haven't gotten to yet. Mm. And I think the funny or the humor in 
the stories when it's there is often rooted in the sense of the absurd, mm -hmm. uh, both like the absurdity of the premise that you've created. You know, you're bringing people along for a ride into a kind of like funhouse mirror world or like a warped version of reality that's recognizable and yet, you know, tweaked in some sense. And so it, it's really fun to read because you're kind of laughing like through the awfulness, you know what I'm saying? It's like both things at the same time. It's like funny and terrifying. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you it, with the Turkey rumble in particular, as an outsider looking in, like here would be my diagnosis of it. Kate is going through the holidays. She's going to a friend's house or a family, her going home for Thanksgiving or going to her significant other's house for Thanksgiving and is contemplating the sort of menace of the holidays, the dark side of the holidays that we all know so well, family arguments at the Thanksgiving dinner table, uh, as one example, especially in heated political seasons, you know, that kind of thing. And that's like the point of Genesis. And then suddenly you, your mind starts snowballing and you're like, what if, what if the conflict was just more overt and turned into a game? Am I anywhere near the right track for how this thing originated for you? Because I want to know, I, I want to know how they start for you typically, if there is a typical way. Mm -hmm. And then how do you build a world that you believe in? Because I think like a challenge for me as a writer is that I might have one of these ideas, but I maybe don't have the creative confidence or the willingness to like, just take the leap. Do you, know, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Because that's what the stories that you write require. You're like, yeah, there's a story called The Head in the Floor where there's mm -hmm. an actual head like birthing into a woman's apartment, I believe, through the mm -hmm. floor. That's a big leap creatively. And you have to have the kind of gumption and the willingness to stick with it. And you have to be able to build, um, you know, linguistically a world that is believable and consistent to the reader. So with the turkey rumble and the sort of like you know, unpacking that I just did, am I anywhere close or was it a totally different set of circumstances that caused this thing to formulate? I mean, I don't, I love that theory. I don't think it was that deep. Like I think I actually wrote that story originally to be performed at like a reading series that I, I was invited to. And I think I, I wrote it just thinking it was like a funny idea. I don't remember how I had the idea exactly, but I don't think it was inspired necessarily by like an actual personal experience of going going to like a significant other's uh, Thanksgiving, but I had had experiences like that of just the awkwardness of of being like in someone else's family's world, basically. And thinking, yeah, I guess I guess that was probably like the subconscious um, rationale behind it. Of you know, it's just so awkward like sitting there with people I don't know and like trying to make conversation and like trying to trying to make a good impression trying to kind of do everything right and then imagining if there's this incredibly awkward expectation that I have to physically injure one of them and um <laughs> and just kind of the the inversion of the usual expectation which of course is to be like very polite very you know like don't offend anyone don't you know commit any faux pas but here it's like the the reverse is is true where it's like, if I don't injure one of them, then I'll cause offense. And, and yeah, maybe this idea of, of like doing things for a partner in order to like prove that 
that you're a worthy partner and that, you know, you're a good long-term investment or whatever. <laughs> right. It's like if, if you won't do this, then, you know, forget it. This so is, this is the litmus. It makes me think of, uh, makes me think of people who are really good hosts. Like you talk about in, entering into somebody else's fam like familial space and how intimate mm -hmm. that is. And that really, yeah, that rings true. Like most of the time it's probably a little bit awkward or like exhausting because you're on trying to be on your best behavior and you're having to process like their like family code or something and whatever that entails. But it also makes me think of people who are just really excellent hosts because I have had the experience where I'm in somebody's space like that and it's just lovely, you know, like, and, mm -hmm. and they make you feel at home and it's fun and lively. And I have so much admiration for people who can bring people together like that and make everybody feel at ease. Do you know what I'm saying? And who can create yeah. those kinds of environments? That's rare. Yeah. Well, and I think that the family in the Turkey rumble would think that they're those kind of hosts, you know, I think that they, in their minds, like this is so fun to do this tradition every year and they're like pounding espresso shots and, you know, <laughs> inflicting pain and receiving pain and it's a rush and all of this. And so, yeah, I guess it's like every family is so weird in its own way. And, but when you're inside the family, it doesn't seem as weird until maybe you bring an outsider in and you're seeing it through their eyes and then, you're like, oh, wow. Because it's just like you get used to it. You take it for granted and it becomes kind of a part of you. So, Well, I uh, is there a, a through line? Like we just kind of dissected the turkey rumble a little bit. But is there a through line that you can detect when you look back at this collection in terms of how story ideas originate for you? Do you begin with an image, a line, a character? Is it just like a situation that you find? that you can kind of tweak slightly and then make interesting to yourself at this level of what surrealism or imaginative play, you know, there's a playfulness to your stories. Like how does it start typically? It's usually just kind of like a, like a premise or even just like a, like one sentence in my head of something that seems kind of funny and weird, like, Oh, like a, a disease where people's bones melt at night and, you know, that's like the bone ward or, or with a scale model of goal point, like imagining this setting of, of like a space needle type restaurant. And then what if there was some like big uprising on the ground and then this person is stuck up there in this like tourist trap restaurant and yeah, like the head and the floor. I mean, I feel like a lot of, obviously a lot of the stories are involve kind of weird houses, weird apartments, that kind of thing. And again, this, this like uncanny notion of inanimate things taking on life and agency. And, and I think that was a lot from like living in the same studio apartment for 10 years. And I actually moved last summer, which was like the end of an era, but I just lived in the same place for so long that it started to feel like the apartment was a part of me. And when things would go wrong in the apartment, it felt like very personal and and almost felt like guilty about it. And I also felt like I couldn't tell anyone because I didn't want to call attention to myself as like still living here. So uh, maybe that's like a, Why a big that? city mentality. I don't know. It wasn't rational. Like, And I did get over that a bit. But I think I had this idea that because I had been in this apartment for, for so long and I had rent control, it was like, well, just like don't remind your landlord that you're here because then maybe they'll realize that, you know, I, I mean, there's nothing they could do. That's the whole point of rent control is that it like legally protects tenants. But I just had this, this kind of weird notion that I should try to get by under the radar and like pretend 
I didn't exist, kind it's, of. It's very, so. mid, it's very Midwestern. <laughs> I feel like it's very Midwestern. Like don't, you don't want to be yeah. trouble. You don't want to be like the squeaky wheel or whatever. Uh, yeah. But way back at the beginning of our conversation, when we started talking about blots, I had like a, another thought that I pressed mm -hmm. pause on because I thought blots would occupy us. And I want to get to that now because you just sort of hit on it. Mm -hmm. And a phrase that occurred to me as I was reading your collection, especially as the stories kind of accumulated, was the phrase structural deficiencies. Like mm -hmm. I kept noticing that like in story after story, there was something like structurally going on, like mm -hmm. the bone ward, you know, people's like actual physical structures were sort of liquefying at night and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the head and the floor, like there's something going on with the structure of this, of this apartment where there's a head growing through the floor and, Mm -hmm. Then there's the moist house where there's a house that needs to be moisturized uh, <laughs> on like a, like a super regular basis just to sort of uh, stay upright or stay structurally uh, intact. Mm -hmm. And I think there are probably others that I'm not even realizing. But, you know, even with the blot stories, you know, there's something structurally going on with the blots, obviously, where you know, the infrastructure is different than what meets the eye or something. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if this yeah. was explicit to you as you were writing it, but you seem very interested in subsurface stuff and mm -hmm. in the fragility and the way that maybe surfaces can sometimes deceive us, I guess. That's really interesting. I'll probably use that because that's a great way to put it. But I think it's another one of these things that was subconscious, but that makes sense to me because I feel like that's kind of our society right now is that like the structures are crumbling, but there's still this facade of, of continuing on like business as usual. And it's only been heightened by the pandemic, but it was, it was happening before. I mean, if you look at like the healthcare system in this country and just all of these ways that like society just doesn't work for people and isn't really sustainable long-term and, and yeah. So I think that probably feeds into it just this sense that there's like something rotten at the center that, that isn't evident yet, but is going to be, and it's, you know, continuing to kind of soften and eventually will collapse. So stuff to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think too, like maybe this sort of dynamic is intensified or the experience of it is intensified when you live someplace that's really physically beautiful, like San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Los Angeles has some of this too. It's a weird juxtaposition to be in a place as gorgeous as San Francisco and to be like confronted with like the spectacular bay and the Golden Gate Bridge and the Marin Headlands and all this stuff and Golden Gate Park. But then to like sort of turn the corner and see all of these unhoused people suffering mm -hmm. or to be experiencing the pandemic, you know, and to be sort of isolated in an apartment and walking around town with a mask trying to keep distance. And, you know, there's a gorgeous sunset or whatever it is. And I know that these things can, you know, there's beauty everywhere, but it's not quite as like, uh, what's the word spectacular as it is obviously in a place like San Francisco. So I don't know, it might be a, yeah. a stranger vantage from which to watch the crumbling of our institutions and infrastructure. <laughs> when I think about it, it's probably like climate change is really the, the, the thing that's looming over all of it and kind of over everything we do generally just this awareness that we're headed for something really terrible it's already underway right and and like the this kind of apocalypse that maybe prior writers had imagined is not going to be like one 
big event that we can point to, but it's just kind of a series of things happening every day that we kind of adjust to and keep going because what else are you going to do? I mean, even like with the beauty of, of nature, like going to a state park or something, there is like this sadness and dread underneath it, right? Of thinking that this might not exist in a few decades or something or or humans won't exist. I don't know. But, you know, there's just this kind <laughs> It'll of... It'll just be a bunch of blots crisis. running. It'll be a bunch of blots running around. Yeah, the blots will be fine. The blots can't spread COVID. <laughs> so... Why lavender mist? I'm curious. Is there something about lavender mist that you find, uh, like, this is the choice that you made creatively for when they vaporize. They vaporize into a cloud of yeah. lavender mist. I think it's just, like, a kind of benign, pleasant scent. And I probably also had a lot of, like, lavender like room spray around at the time or something, but it's also just like with an innovation like this, it seems like that little, that little kind of F you at the end of it's like, Oh, I, I completely fucked over your life and like stole your data. Um, but here's a nice little burst of lavender mist to leave you with. So it's like, like, have a a nice day. Yeah. You just got like, it's like a via, like a, you know, complete violation, but we're going to treat it like a spa, like a spa treatment at the end. And, uh, you know, yeah. Maybe eucalyptus. Maybe there are certain blots that leave like a eucalyptus burst or something. But yeah, uh, could be. I think that you know when I was listening to you describe the ways in which you conceive of your story ideas, the phrase "high concept" came to mind. Mm. Like you're good at coming up with high concept story ideas, like these kind of one-liners. Where like if not only if you pitch it to yourself, but I think if you pitch it to other people, they go, "Oh, like that's mm-hmm. a good idea." You know, like uh, humanoid like super hot uh android men who you know show up on your dating app and take you out for coffee and are like very polite and nice but you know are want to steal your data that's mm-hmm. maybe not the most elegant one-line pitch but you know what i'm saying like <laughs> i think people can see the story potential in that or can feel the shape of that story instantly mm-hmm. and that's a real skill to be able to do that i don't think everybody who tells stories can tell those kinds of stories and is it something that you like consciously set out to do or were you trying to model other writers who do it well? I think it took a, a while for me to find my direction as a writer, kind of my subject matter and what excited me and made me feel like I was writing something that was its own thing and not just kind of imitating other writers I had read because yeah, like before I thought like to be a serious writer, I had to write more in that realist mode like that I had read in grad school. And I don't know. I mean, in in a way, I feel like it's, it's because I'm a bit like, easily bored and maybe lazy that I just glom on to like, the the flashy, like high concept ideas. Because I think it is I mean, it's so hard to like, write a really effective, like emotionally resonant, realist short story. And I so admire people who, who do that. And, and I've attempted to do it sometimes myself too. But um, yeah, I think for me, when I when I started letting myself just explore, kind of into other other modes, like beyond realism, that was that was when I really started to feel like I was developing my own thing. So, like like I said, like I, I started reading after after grad school. I started I started reading a lot of work in like literary journals and and reading writers who were more um, they were like ahead of me in their career, but just a few steps ahead of me rather than reading like Raymond Carver or something or, um, you know, someone who is much more established or 
or dead, I guess. Um, like like firmly, like in the canon or something like that. Right. Yeah. So people who, who I could kind of like see how they had done it. I could see the steps of their career and, and reading literary journals and and seeing what other people were doing, I think really opened things up to me and, and made me realize like how many different types of writing were possible and kind of acceptable within this literary world. I think I just tend to um, gravitate more toward those high concepts premises with movies and shows and, and books. And so those are the things that really excite me and, and make me think like, Oh, I wish I had written that or, or yeah, I just, my mind starts like thinking of possibilities for it. It's more fun. So than other things. It's, yeah, it's fun. Like, and like, this is like a good thing to underline. Like it's okay for it to be fun. It's okay for it to be fun. And maybe the writing of it, there should be some element of that, like some element of excitement and playfulness and, you know, something that's like stimulating imaginatively. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I can get lost on that front, you know, getting too fixed on, fixated on other stuff or wanting it to seem real or, you know, all the other mm-hmm. kind of concerns that can preoccupy a writer. And, have you ever had a, a sense of like, well, this is too much or I can, can I do this? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you have any confidence issues that you had to overcome from a creative standpoint to get yourself to where you could kind of believe in your own lies? <laughs> <laughs> I know I had like so many stories that didn't work that I just kind of abandoned. But I think that those were usually stories that didn't have that quality of of like the log line quality of, of being able to sum it up and in a way that felt exciting and, and kind of succinct. They were more just like, I didn't really know what I was saying or I didn't know what the story was. And and maybe that became something else later or maybe I just abandoned it. But, you know, a lot of the stories in here, um, like The Bone Ward, for instance, like I, I worked on that story for so long. I probably started it in like 2014. And, you know, I, it was long before I like had an agent or, or really any like footing in, in the literary world. So I think just like having having so long to kind of work on stories and and figure them out by myself, I was able to convince myself of the world. I think anything that I've stuck with long enough to take it through multiple drafts, I've I've had to have a lot of confidence in or just interest in for myself, I guess. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that the ones that didn't work are the ones that you couldn't kind of boil down into a a single line or a line or two, you know, where you really have a clear sense of of the pitch. Uh, that seems instructive to me, especially, you know, if you're working in this mode, but maybe if you're working in any mode, like if you can't, if you can't clearly state what your project is, there's probably something that you need to address. You know, it's like, it seems like a useful practical bit of knowledge. And I think too, when it comes to this kind of work and the way that it translates to film and television, I mean, obviously like the whole log line and the the one-liner is kind of a creature of film and tv world you don't hear it as much in in uh regard to literary stuff though i think it mm-hmm. it can apply you've had some success selling the rights to your work or at least to a couple of the stories for adaptation mm-hmm. like the blot stories are being adapted at hulu is that right yeah we're we're developing a show um it's actually not at hulu anymore we, I think we found another home for it, so it's still still being negotiated. But hopefully that that will become something. But are, are you going to yeah, write that's, it? Yeah, that's that's the first project. 
Yeah, so I've been writing it. Um, I've been co-writing it with uh, Sharon Horgan, who is a, a really great TV writer, actor, producer, everything. And she's been amazing. So that's that's been my first kind of hands-on experience with, with screenwriting and and developing something. I've had a few other things optioned that I wasn't involved in, in adapting, but I think at this point I want to... I want to adapt my own work. So yeah, I'm definitely, I'm trying to to do more in that space and hopefully it it won't mean I never write fiction again, but. (laughs) Well, but I mean, yeah, there's like, there are good opportunities to tell interesting stories in that medium, like more than ever, it seems like. And I'm now thinking like, well, I think the Turkey Rumble would make an excellent dark comedy for the holidays, right? I I could see that. Um, totally. It's like it would be like Fight Club holiday meets the holidays or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that happen? You know, like this. Let's talk about the publication story mm-hmm. for your collection. You were, or I don't know if you still are, but you were a Stegner Fellow at mm-hmm. Stanford, which is I'm imagining where you workshopped a lot of these. So yeah, I was a Stegner from 2000, 2019 to 2021. So I'm no longer a Stegner Fellow, but I it, actually I, I think I only worked up like the Blot stories and then Moist House um, in the Stegner, and then most of the time I was working on a novel, which I'm still working on. And yeah, so I mean the publication process, like I always try to stress this, like in interviews and stuff, because this wasn't like the first book I wrote, and it's been a long journey to get here. And I think when I was, you know, earlier in my career or whatever, I I just felt like everyone else was doing it so easily. Like people would be like super young and have this debut come out and it just seemed kind of seamless the way it all happened. But I know that's not the case for many authors, including, including me. So sounds like someone's blaring their horn right now. If you can hear that. Yeah, I can hear it. Okay. <laughs> I live on like an extremely busy street and this is just like... What part of town constant. are you in? I'm in the Richmond, just north of Golden Gate Park. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I actually, you know, I, I've been working with my agent for a while since since like 2016 and we had taken out two other books on submission before this one. One was a story collection that had a lot of overlap with this one, but it, it's not this, it wasn't the same book. It didn't have the blot stories and it actually had a bunch of other stories that I wound up cutting for this for this book so and then I also wrote a novel that that didn't sell but that I I hope to do something with at some point either as a novel or or as a show or something so uh yeah the way it came together I mean it was it was a lot it was completely because of the New Yorker publication really I mean that was really unexpected and when when they took out their the story that that was just like a moment that changed everything kind of and that led to to the book and also to um to the tv stuff and all of that so that was that was the game changer okay so how did that happen your agent your <laughs> so, agent submits the story to them or? yeah yeah my so my agent uh, my agent is great and she who, who is she may i ask uh her name's emma patterson okay yeah so she's she's amazing and and she's been with me through through all of this and so we actually met in person for the first time in in 2019 like over the summer I went to New York and she had had a lot of success placing some stories of mine in journals uh when we first started working together and and so she was saying like oh we should try placing stories again like that was fun and so I actually started writing out there like on the plane ride home from that trip to New York and I had had the blot story like a few years before, but just written like a, 
a piece of flash fiction or something and then just put it aside and forgotten about it. And so I went back to that idea and and wrote the story. And it was the first story I workshopped in the Stegner program. And then uh, Emma sent it like in November and we heard back in like February and then it happened really fast. Like they published it within like three weeks, I think. So it was it was a lot. Okay, but... so what happens when you get published by the New Yorker? Do you get a phone call from David Remnick? Does he send you like some cookies <laughs> or something? <laughs> no, uh, no, I got an email from him the the day it was published, but otherwise, I I wasn't working with him. Um, I was working with another editor, and and it it was it was all through my agent. So uh, she she wanted to take the book out, uh, the story collection out, kind of in conjunction with with that story coming out in the New Yorker. So, which was a good move because I, I had actually put together this collection and I was just sending it out to contests, like small press contests and that kind of thing. Cause I was just like, these stories are, I know these stories are good. Like I, I just want there to be a home for them in the world where, where people can just have like my stories collected together in this forum. And so, so I had it ready to go and I, I definitely recommend that for people trying to like place a story collection to just have a manuscript ready to send when, when these opportunities come, because it was the same way. Like when, when agents approached me in the past where I just, I had a manuscript to send to them and say like, this is, this is what I have. And I think that's so helpful. So, and then everything was just over email, you know, it was just like a regular journal, literary journal experience, I guess, except the New Yorker. So do they do any, like how much editing did they do? They did a, a, a fair amount of editing. I mean, it was, I think the original story, um, actually it's maybe in the book, I think it's restored to the original version, which is a bit longer, but the editor cut it down by maybe like 2,500 words as like a precondition of going forward with it, because I think that was like the space they were working with, but he made the cuts really well because when I, when I read it over, I almost didn't notice what was missing. So I was like, yeah, that's what you want to see. That sounds good. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, we went through a few rounds and I, I edited it pretty intensely just because I knew it was so high profile. So, yeah, I I did the best I could. And, and then there were rounds of like copy editing and like the New Yorker has all these interesting conventions around like commas and stuff. Like there's a lot of commas in the New Yorker style, like a, like a comma after after but at the beginning of a sentence, like but comma and then right. the rest of the sentence which i always thought was like a little strange but now now i just kind of do that because uh, it's the new yorker does it so I, enough they knew it i mean like every, I mean, it is interesting how all these different publications have their own sort of theory of the case when it comes to grammar you know there's not really one unified theory there's like the chicago style and the blah 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 and, yeah you know, I, I guess like you have no choice but to submit to the new yorker style when the new yorker's publishing you it's probably an honor Please do insert those commas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do, what you, do what you want. Do what you want. So let's talk about uh, how you found your agent. She actually emailed me because she had read some stories I published online, and and I did that for for years. I was just like constantly submitting to journals and and placing short stories, and and so I guess it paid off because I had kind of an online presence, and I I had a website with publications on it, and. I had a couple uh, agents reach out to me in a similar way, but it seemed like the others were more like as soon as I said that I, I had a story collection ready to go, but I was working on a novel. It was like they just wanted to wait for the novel, basically, which I understand. But Emma 
really loved the stories. And so she, she just wanted to, you know, work together on that earlier collection. And yeah, that was how it started. So I think it's, it's kind of unconventional. The more conventional path is like the whole querying process, right. Of like having a finished book and then sending out query letters and, and doing all that, which I did do at an earlier stage when I had a novel that I thought was publishable, but it wasn't. So thank God no one wanted it, but. (laughs) Well, I I think it's like, like the way that it happened for you is a good way. Uh, like, like, you know, like, and I think maybe it's a more contemporary way because we have all these venues to publish, uh, stories online, uh, you know, all these venues at which to publish stories online. And so from an exposure standpoint, I feel like there are options and I think that literary agents, uh, are often among the readers of these sites. I mean, they're, Mm -hmm. they're constantly trolling these sites to try to find new talent. And so, I don't know. There's something I think maybe healthier isn't the right word, but um, sounder or something about it working this way, where the agent comes mm-hmm. to you based on an authentic response to your work, mm-hmm. as opposed to you, you know, kind of like uh, knocking on their door. I don't know. That would be my pre- my preferred mode if I were out there looking for an agent now. You know, like put stuff out there and see if if it resonates, and if it does, then. Yeah. It's true love. That's what I mean to say. It's sort of like <laughs> online dating. <laughs> I guess the big question is, is Emma Patterson a humanoid or is she a real human being? Pretty uh, sure she's real. We've had lunch, so. Okay. But what did she eat? Did you pay attention? <laughs> um, so I want to ask you now, like if we can kind of go back in time a little bit to the day that Out There drops, like in the New Yorker, both like, I guess mm-hmm. online maybe happens a little bit before print. Is that the way it works these days? Mm-hmm. Describe that, and then in conjunction, can you describe what was happening with the sales process for your collection? Yeah, well, it's easy because it was all the same day, which it was that day I described of also the pandemic starting and and San Francisco going into shelter in place. So it was, I forget the exact date. It was March, I think, seventeenth or something. It was a Monday. Um, so yeah, everything happened on that day, and <laughs> so. We had some interest in the book, you know, we had a few offers and, and so it was just like, but like, wait a minute, like they, it had been submitted to editors prior to the pub date in the New Yorker. Like they they had it. It was kind of like my agent, basically, as soon as we knew about the New Yorker, she sent out the collection, like, and that, that was why it helped to have it basically ready to go. So she sent it out, I think the next day after we we heard about the new yorker and so the, just like so, just to put it on a timeline so this would have been like mm-hmm. what back in like november when the when the story no this this was in february 2020 so she submitted it i think in november and then oh, the it was new a few months before we heard yeah oh, oh, okay so then okay so just like in terms of submission to editors like c- submitting the collection to editors that happened like what three weeks to a month out from when it appeared in the new yorker yeah i think like three weeks so yeah and you know i mean it all happened really fast and that um it's just interesting because like with the the previous times i've gone on submission because it, it didn't end in a deal or an offer it just felt like it went on forever because you know we had passes kind of trickling in but it, it was just really interesting to see like when there was some heat behind it because of the new yorker even though it hadn't come out yet you know 
my agent was able to say like the the first story is is going to be published in the New Yorker in three weeks. And so I think that immediately like got people's attention and also probably put like a time pressure on it of making it feel urgent. So yeah, it's interesting to see how, how fast it can happen. And then, I mean, there's just all kinds of different ways, obviously, that a book deal can happen. But in this case, it all it all came together kind of at the same time. I feel like you could write a story about that, like some sort yeah. of personal essay about like going into lockdown and your story appears in the New Yorker after all these years of like, you know, apprenticeship and hard labor and then your collection sells. Like, that's a big day for you. What did you do? <laughs> I don't... I don't know what I did. I don't think I did anything. I'd had like a close exposure with someone who had COVID. And so <laughs> I didn't know if I had COVID. I, I didn't end up having it. I don't think I didn't have any symptoms. But I, so I was like quarantining, in addition to it being like shelter in place. But you know, most people like weren't really taking it seriously. But I was I was taking it really seriously because I knew someone who who had it. And so and, and by um, the way, I don't mean to make light. It just seems funny in the context of you know, yeah, all this good this stuff happening at once. Yeah. So, so I felt, I don't remember exactly what I did, but I, you know, I think I did, I was taking it pretty seriously of, of just staying in my apartment. And so, and it's, it's interesting too, when all of this stuff is just happening, like on my computer, because it's just like, Oh, I closed my laptop and it's like, none of it is actually happening. <laughs> like right. it's just notifications from stuff I posted on like Twitter and Instagram and maybe emails or something, but it's actually, yeah, it's not real or it doesn't correspond to like the material world, um, necessarily. So yeah, I just hung out with my cats and, and I guess like checked my notifications and how many cats you got? <laughs> uh, I have two cats. Okay. And then, uh, you wind up getting an offer like was it a preempt or is there an auction or like well, how did it happen in terms of like you getting the deal like and it all went down that day so i have to imagine yeah, yeah it was an auction so um so there were three offers and and um and one was kind of the obvious choice and and you know i really like the editor and um they just seemed it just seemed like the way to go it was the right clear. fit who is the editor yeah. may i ask um, her name's Cleo Seraphim at oh. Random House. Okay. Yeah. And uh, did that did the did the deal include like a option for the novel that you're working on? Yeah, yeah. So it's a two book deal. So the novel will be the second book, and yeah, it's kind of still far off though. Can do you have a one line pitch? I have to ask, and no pressure if you do not. But I'm just curious to know if like you have a a log line for this novel that you're working on. Yeah, it's like a woman who is sexually and romantically drawn to airplanes. And it's also kind of loosely modeled after Moby Dick in a way. But that's kind of falling away as I write it. Okay. Uh, but that was a scaffolding I used was Moby Dick, like to write a first draft. And less so the actual like plot than um, the voice, this kind of Melvillian voice and asides and the idea of, of Moby Dick being like an anatomy of a whale and, and this book being an anatomy of a plane in a way by someone who is just deeply uh, infatuated with them. So airplanes. Yeah. Yeah. Like commercial jets. Interesting. So. Do you have like a, like a, your pilot's license or something? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, it's another one of those things where it's like, 
my character, you know, doesn't work for the airline or have any kind of special knowledge. She's just a regular person who happens to be in love with planes. So I figured it's better not to know too much because I want to be like on her same level of just looking stuff up on the internet. Right, right. Plus, it's like maybe, you know, it's it might be easier creatively or something. I can imagine how, you you know, you could become freighted with too much knowledge. It's sort of like when I over-prepare for an interview, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's good to prepare, but if you over-prepare, it's like weird to come to a conversation loaded with that much information. I think so. I mean, I I feel like I'm still trying to figure out how to write a novel as I'm doing it, but it just seems like most of the novel writing advice people have is like, just write it, just write a first draft. And it's like, okay, that's great. But <laughs> I mean, and it's true in a way, like that is really the only way to do it, but it's pretty confusing about how to do it. And I, I, I didn't feel like I could start with an outline because I didn't understand the story or the character until I had just really been in that world for like for a long time, I was just, generating raw material that wasn't in a coherent draft or arc or anything and just trying to write like a thousand words a day in this character's voice and exploring different things that could happen and so I did that for almost like two years and and now I'm in the process of writing like an actual draft and and I have done some outlining this time but well you get to you get to it eventually like I love hearing that because it's like what you're describing is how messy the process is and how you have to sort of finger paint in the dark for a while, most of the time, like most everybody. I mean, occasionally a book will come out in like one hot minute or something, but even for the best, the best, best writers, they will often generate hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pages of unusable stuff before they figure out the story that they're even trying to tell. Yeah. And that can be like maybe disconcerting to hear for people who like me or like profoundly lazy, like by nature, but <laughs> it's also heartening because you're like, oh, well, I'm not doing it wrong. If this is the case for me, this is just how it goes most of the time. Yeah. As you find your way towards it. And, uh, I'm excited to read it. Uh, do you have a sense of like, you said it's a ways off, so you're still sort of sorting yeah. it out. I'm still sorting it out and sorting out exactly what will happen in it. But yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I think for me, so much of writing is just intuitive and kind of subconscious. And that idea of like your brain working on it, even when you're not writing, you know, like when you're sleeping or whatever. And and I think that that that's the only way that I can get to a story that feels real and interesting and original but it is like a interesting kind of push pull between that intuitive style of writing and then the more kind of rational outlining style and and I like being able to go back and forth so it's like now that I have kind of an idea of what I want the arc to be it it helps to do kind of a reverse outline and just write like like a log line and then maybe like a synopsis of what happens in the story and knowing that it might change still, but going back and forth between those two modes, I think has, has been the most helpful for me. And also like using that Moby Dick as a kind of scaffolding. Like I just Mm -hmm. talked to Sam Chang on this show who has a novel out called the family Chow, which is an homage, Mm -hmm. which is along the same lines as a scaffolding, but she was kind of writing into the brothers Karamazov, you know, that was kind Mm -hmm. of the, the model for her novel. Um, and then she deviated, you know, then you right. sort of do away with it. But that's another like practical bit of advice that I find useful is 
that, you know, people have done this before you and they've done it well. Mm -hmm. Like you might find a book that's particularly resonant or, you know, helps you be generative imaginatively and use it as a scaffolding. And then as it eventually as like your story finds its own structure, you can kind of like let it go a little bit. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with modeling, I think. I think yeah. it can actually maybe shorten the distance between A and Z rather than having to go through all the trial and error on your own without using like the good the good wisdom of the works that have come before, you know? Yeah, I know Zadie Smith talks about that too in this essay. I think it's called That Crafty Feeling. It was like a lecture and, and now it's an essay online. But it's a great essay and it's about writing writing novels. And she talks about that too, about using various scaffoldings. And I think it just helps to generate a draft too because that really is like the hardest thing is just getting down the first draft. And so even if all the scaffolding is going to be removed and kind of undetectable in the, in the final version, I think it's, it's almost like having your hand held by, you know, another author, just as you kind of put down the first version of it. So I need that. I need all the hand holding I can get. And I think yeah, too, like taking, too. taking notes, like I, I, I have found anyway that like kind of building like just this, it's like a file that I just dump things into. Mm-hmm. Do you have one yeah. of these? <laughs> yeah, I always call it the title of the piece and then overflow. And that's my overflow document. So Yeah, and it's like, oh, well, I'll just grab this paragraph because this speaks to something or, mm-hmm. you know, it's like my thoughts are built of other people's thoughts, which again, it should be kind of like an elemental thing that you just like, of course, that's the case, but I need to like somehow be reminded of it or make it explicit for myself. And I feel like weirdly sometimes there's this pressure that writers can put on themselves to want to be like the sole point of origin. Like that's the job. Like I've got to come up with the answer or I've got to mm-hmm. like, and it's like, no, that's not, it's not how it works. Like books are made of books and you know, you're, you're, you're making it harder on yourself than it needs to be. If you're putting all that responsibility on your plate. Like I think, uh, I don't know. This has just been my experience. I don't mean to project it onto you. You might know this already. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I mean, it's it's interesting to you to go from writing short stories to writing a novel because it's just like the, a novel is such a greater leap of faith, I think, because it's like being, being content with uh, the awareness that I'm not going to figure it all out today. Like, I won't have this whole thing in hand by the end of this writing day. There's There's just no way. Whereas with a story, it's like, yeah, like the Turkey Rumble, I think I wrote a draft of that like in one sitting. It's just so much easier to kind of wrap your head around it and and see like an end to it. Whereas with the novel, yeah, it's just like chipping away at little parts of, of like the rock face or whatever and not being able to see the whole picture until suddenly maybe hopefully one day it's revealed. Well, I love talking with you and I'm glad to meet you. I appreciate you making the time. And congratulations on this book. And I hope you enjoy the process. I know it can be a little bit stressful. I hope amid all that, you're finding time to kind of celebrate and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been great. It's a dream. (laughs) Okay, everybody. There you have it. That is Kate Folk. Her debut story collection is available now from Random House, wherever books are sold. It is called Out There. You can find Kate Folk online at katefolk.com. Track her down on Twitter at Kate Folk. She's also on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Out There. 
Go get a copy. Go get multiple copies. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show is made available to you, the listener, for free. If you like this program and you listen regularly, I hope you will consider supporting it. You can do that for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. You can support the show for as little as $1 a month. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. I will wish you a happy birthday. I will send you a postcard in the mail. Go check it out. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to pre-order my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, you can do that at bradlisty.com. You can also check out my new uh, events page at bradlisty.com, and you can sign up for the email newsletter that I do, the weekly email newsletter. You can sign up for that at uh, bradlisty.com or this show's official website, otherppl.com. Just click on email newsletter in the sidebar sign up for it. It's free. I send one email a week. I let you know about the latest episode and I send you links to some things that I've read that I've liked or things that have caught my eye. It's simple. It's just a list. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It too is free. Go get the app. It's available wherever apps are available. The Other People Podcast also has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? Check that out over at YouTube. Search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. The entire archive is on YouTube. If you would like to write me an email, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Offer your feedback. Tell me a story. Share your vision. And... If you pre-order my novel, send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase. I will write you a note by hand, and I'll send you another People sticker in the mail. I will also drop your name in the monologue. All right, I think that's it. I will talk to you next week.